Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome at long last to the triumphant return of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. My name's Patrick Moore, and I'm very happy that you could be joining me once again to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. Now, for those of you who don't know who I am, I used to run the Undercover Bubble Podcast about a year or so ago. And basically, in that podcast, I embedded myself in conservative media and sort of reported on it from a liberal perspective. So in other words, I would watch channels like Fox News and Newsmax and One America and things like that, see how they sort of operated and how they reported on things that were actually happening in the world, and then sort of compared and contrasted that with, you know, the way things were actually going. So what I found and sort of the reason why I stopped doing that podcast was no matter what the story was, there was always the same narrative of how are we going to make this the Democrats' fault? Or how are we going to make this Biden's fault? And so after a while of basically watching conservative media, it started to get in a very predictable pattern of, I'm not this, but these are questions that need to be asked. And ultimately, the blame rests on Biden or the Democrats or Pelosi or Gavin Newsom or whoever they wanted to blame for whatever ills they saw in the world. And so the whole exercise of trying to report on the happenings within the bubble sort of became a pointless exercise because every time I'd get new material, it would always end up being the same thing. Oh, we're just going to blame Biden for this. Oh, we're just going to blame the Democrats for this. Everything bad that is happening in the world is because of them. It doesn't matter what that thing is or what sort of insane, twisted logic we have to apply to it in order to make it that way. Plus, just the sheer amount of material in the bubble I had to go through to make each episode was literally starting to drive me insane. It actually got to the point where I started to, I wouldn't say I started to believe what I was hearing on conservative media, but when I went back to watching normal news, I'd say like, but wait, why aren't they mentioning, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop or anything like that? Like, I sort of felt myself actually getting sort of suckered into that mentality of the bubble where it was like, why isn't the regular news media talking about these things? The answer being, of course, because they're complete insanity. So that's why I stopped doing Undercover Bubble. It was really just kind of an exercise in futility that ended up pissing me off more than actually giving me more information on the right. So I sort of thought for a while that I was done with podcasting. And then, over the last few months, things started to happen. Whether that be Russia invading Ukraine, whether that be the Supreme Court just making all sorts of insane right-wing decisions, including the overturning of Roe v. Wade, whether it be places like Texas deciding to just go full religious authoritarian state and kind of turning themselves into a discount version of The Handmaid's Tale. Just, I see all these things happening and what I've noticed is that the way that conservative media talks about them, you would think that this was the second coming of Jesus. Like, they just can't get enough of it. They love the fact that Republicans are finally stepping up for what's right and putting prayer back into our schools and making moral authority and the authority of God, the law of the land, and all these things. So it's almost as if the authoritarian tendencies of the Republican Party that were kind of always there, from what I've seen, are really now, in the last few months specifically, 
starting to show themselves publicly and actually affect policy. So with that in mind, I decided it was about time for me to dust off the old podcasting chair and get back to it. So Undercover Bubble is back, ladies and gentlemen, but I am going to be doing it a little bit differently this time. So rather than just doing a weekly thing where I sort of take a slightly facetious look at the way that conservative media is reporting on things, I'm going to be examining a bubble a little bit more broadly. So before I do that, I'm going to just introduce myself really quickly and give you a little more information about me. My name's Patrick Moore. I'm 33 years old. I am a graduate from Northridge in political science, and I've been a political junkie pretty much as long as I've been able to understand politics. I do consider myself a Democrat. I do consider myself a progressive, but at the same time, I'm not necessarily tied to either of those terms. So I like to think of myself as pretty open-minded. But anyway, what I'm going to be doing with this podcast is each episode, I'm going to be taking a look at a specific issue or viewpoint or piece of propaganda or media that someone on the right puts out. I'm going to be deconstructing it both from a liberal perspective and debunking it from a factual perspective, but I'm also going to be sort of tying it into the overall narrative that I've seen in the last few years, but in particular the last few months from the Republican Party specifically sort of furthering their goal of creating a authoritarian, quasi-religious, anti-democratic state. And so, to sort of give a background on why I think that's the case, and to provide sort of an overarching narrative for this whole podcast, today's episode is going to be a little bit different than all the rest. Rather than focusing on a specific piece of media, as I'm going to in my next episode, today I'm going to be basically giving a brief history of conservatism and right-wing movements in the United States as a sort of backgrounder to why I believe the Republican Party is the way it is now. And spoiler alert, I'm going to conclude that it's always been this way. It's just more comfortable showing it now, specifically because of Trump. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the last 250 years or so of the history of conservatism in the United States and show that even from the beginning, they were advocating for a specific mindset and a specific way in which things should be run in government, which, when you boil it down to a single sentence, is basically, those who have power deserve it and should keep it. So, I think we should start out just by defining what exactly is conservatism. If you look at the textbook, conservatism basically means a political movement that defends traditional institutions. And so obviously you've got to ask yourself, what are traditional institutions? What is traditional to a conservative? And the meaning of this word really does depend on the issue that we're talking about and the time period that we're referencing. But generally speaking, conservatism means whatever is the opposite of progressive socioeconomic change. So basically, whatever liberals want, whenever liberals want to advance some sort of rights or anything like that, conservatism is what pops up to say, hold on a minute, maybe we shouldn't do this. So with that in mind, what I found is that there are three tenets of modern conservatism that we can sort of boil the whole ideology down to. The first one is realism. I mean, I 
personally call it pessimism, but it's basically in conservative thought called realism. And realism states that people will always try to benefit themselves above all others. So if you want sort of a more real-world concrete example of this, we take the philosophies of Thomas Hobbes. His thinking was basically that mankind, absent any real societal or political power that sort of loomed over them and forced them into society, mankind would be a const- in a constant state of war against itself. So he calls it a war of every man versus every man. Basically, if you're a person in mankind's state of nature where there's no society, your life will be poor, nasty, brutish, and short because everyone will kill everyone else for their stuff. And so his idea is that in order to prevent mankind from destroying itself and basically being in chaos, we need a centralized and powerful authority to keep order and make sure that this doesn't happen. So that's realism. The second tenet of modern conservatism is tradition. Basically, conservatives think that tradition and familiarity of previous social structures is preferable to any other way of running a society. Their idea is that progressive change will inevitably result in anarchy and violence. Basically, a lot of times they cite things like the French Revolution and the Civil War and the violence that came from the Civil Rights Movement, and nowadays they say Black Lives Matter. Basically saying that the Black Lives Matter protests were violent, and we need to just leave things as they were so we don't have more Black Lives Matter violence. Which, of course, is completely ludicrous because the vast majority, I believe around 96% of Black Lives Matter protests were peaceful. But anyway, this is what they say. They basically think that we need to stick to tradition and what we already know rather than take a chance on inviting chaos with some crazy new progressive ideals. So the third tenet, and probably the most important one of modern conservatism, is what I call the social hierarchy. Basically, conservatives believe that there is a natural order to the world, and to quote George Orwell in Animal Farm, that all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. In other words, those who have power already deserve it simply because they have that power. And because they have that power already, that must mean that they're just better people than people who don't have power. Because obviously, if they're the ones with the power, how could they have gotten it if they weren't better than everyone else? And of course, it's very easy to see how this ideology could be manipulated into just straight up classism and racism and has. And I'll get into that in a little bit when we talk about sort of the rise of the southern slave states. So anyway, those are the three main tenets of modern conservatism that haven't really changed since the ideology came to be in the 1700s. Realism, tradition, and social hierarchy. So if we put all those three things together into one sentence, we can say that in a nutshell, conservatism is all about saying that the wild masses need to be controlled by a predetermined hierarchy of deserving men. This core belief of conservative ideology has not changed since the 1600s when Thomas Hobbes first came up with it. So then the question remains, how did we get from there to what's happening today with 
the Republicans trying to suppress votes and instill Christian ideology into the government and basically saying, we need to be in power because otherwise there will be chaos. So what I'm going to do today is go through a brief history of conservatism in the United States and show that the modern GOP, in embracing Trumpism and anti-democracy and trying to rig and suppress votes and inserting Christian values into the government, is not so much an evolution of the core conservative tenets as they'd want you to believe. In other words, conservatism from the beginning has never been a pro-democracy movement. It's just more comfortable showing it nowadays, and I'm going to go through why that is. But before I do, I would highly recommend that anyone who's interested in this subject and wants a more in-depth version of what I'm going to be talking about, I'd highly recommend you go watch a series called The Alt-Right Playbook on YouTube. He does an episode in which he goes into the actual history of conservatism and basically makes the same argument that I'm making now. So if you listen to this episode and want more information, I would highly recommend you go watch that video. So I'm going to start with the person they call the founder of modern conservatism, Edmund Burke. So his musings on conservatism came when he was writing about the French Revolution, but specifically, and this is important, defending the rights of the monarchy. He wrote that the standards derived from the medieval aristocracy were the, quote, natural way of running a nation. He believed that everything, including free market economics and even the monarchy itself, should be under this aristocracy. Why would he think this? Because it, and I'm quoting him directly here, represented the wisdom of the species. In other words, this is one of the core tenets of conservatism. The best men who deserve the power are already in power. The insinuation here is that these people were able to achieve this power simply because they were better than everybody else. And as a result of this school of thought, Burke was very highly skeptical of representative democracy. Democracy would impose a, quote, tyranny of the majority and sort of leave the aristocracy out to dry. So you hear that term, tyranny of the majority, a lot in conservative circles nowadays because, A, they know that the demographics are not trending in their favor. People are getting more politically active and more politically progressive, and they don't like that. So they're becoming the minority, and they don't want to be stuck in a liberal government. But anyway, Burke believed that average people just weren't good enough or smart enough to grasp the intricacies of governing a nation. He believed that only these better men in the aristocracy were capable of such lofty things. He thought they could easily be angered and manipulated into authoritarian tendencies. And, well, I guess he was right about that. You see what's happening with Trumpism and the way people are embracing it, and, of course, culminating in January 6th. But Burke's conclusion was that because the average person would simply be mentally unable to grasp the intricacies of government and would inevitably erupt into chaos and violence, that it should be left up to these predetermined better people at the top of the social ladder to make governmental decisions. So tying this back to the core tenets of conservatism, this is basically where it comes from. You have the aristocracy, the better men who deserve this power, in control of everybody else because no one else can handle it because they're just better. And because they're just better, they deserve this power. 
And when you word it this way, it does sound an awful lot like divine right and how kings sort of justified their power in the medieval age, which makes a lot of sense because Burke was defending the monarchy. So the other person we need to talk about from this time period is Joseph de Maistre. We can call him the father of religious conservatism. So he also agreed with Burke that average people couldn't run a government because it would lead inevitably to hostility and violence, as it did with the French Revolution. Again, these men were both writing about the French Revolution specifically. And de Maistre even took it a step further. He believed that even the average person talking about how government should be run leads to chaos and violence. The way he put it was that being rational leads to irrational disagreement. And so, rather than an aristocracy, he believed that the way to fix this was to have a predetermined, infallible, absolute authority to run things to avoid this bloodshed. He believed that this authority should be religion, specifically religious aristocracy. And his idea was that since their authority, as the religious aristocracy, is derived directly from God, again, sounds a lot like divine right to rule of the monarchs to me, it cannot be questioned by the stupid, violent masses. So with that, these people in society have these better men with infallible authority to look up to and make decisions for them. Because they know better. And why do they know better? Because they do. Because they have this power. It's very circular sort of logic that they use. These people have the power because they deserve it. And because they deserve it, that's why they have it. So those two are basically the founding fathers of the modern conservative movement. And their ideas haven't really left the conservative consciousness since its inception. And so you're probably asking yourself, where does America fit in here? But it's true that these guys were not Americans, and they weren't writing about America, but I thought it was very important to mention them because a lot of American conservative thought, including even modern-day American conservatives, mention specifically these two people as sort of the foundation on which they build their ideology. So, talking about America... The original conservatives in America were actually British loyalists. And if you think about it, it's certainly kind of insightful into their thought process, them saying that the folks from Britain, the aristocracy, and the monarchy are the better men who know better how to govern than we do. And it's interesting, with that in mind, that conservatives often argue that the American Revolution was a conservative reactionary movement simply because one of the main triggers for it was taxation, specifically taxation without representation. But if you think about it, this argument fails to take into account the other factors that played into the American Revolution. It wasn't just taxation. It was the way that people were being treated by the government specifically. It was the idea that you couldn't print what you wanted and say what you wanted and be what religion you wanted. Like, essentially, it fails to take into account these other factors and specifically the desire for a self-determining democratic government, specifically, that the Founding Fathers wanted. So in this way, the American Revolution wasn't really a conservative 
movement so much as a pro-democratic movement, which ironically would be actually a progressive movement today. But anyway, we didn't really have a conservative versus liberal sort of ideological battle going on early on in the country's history, obviously because everyone was just trying to get along and start this new experiment in democracy. So the first true conservative party came up with John Adams and the Federalists. And what these Federalists sought in government was a natural aristocracy based on property, status, and education. So in other words, if you were a white man in high social standing, educated with property, that means you are able to have governmental power. And it's interesting to see how these criteria that the Federalists wanted to use for being able to have governmental power sort of fits right in with what Burke and DeMaestre said should be the ideal qualifications, which is they already have high status, they already have property, they're already educated, they are already these better men, and therefore they deserve to be in power, as opposed to everyone else who just won't cut it. So that was the Federalists. And then a couple of decades later, because it took a while for sort of political ideologies to get settled, we had our first true modern traditionalist conservative party in the Whigs in the mid-1800s. And their big platform was that they were calling for a return to tradition and hierarchy. Sound familiar? But anyway, as a result of this ideology basically saying that we need to return to our traditional roots and the people who deserve the power should have the power and the people who have the power deserve the power, they found very heavy support among the slave-owning South, of course, whose entire economy was based specifically on racial hierarchy. And with no person is this ideology more clear than with former Vice President John C. Calhoun. He was a staunch defender of slavery and minority rights, by which he meant southern slave-owning whites, and I can sort of see some parallels between that and the modern great replacement theory where whites are now going to become the minority, and so he's just standing up for minority rights. So same thing there, same thing here. That's sort of the point I'm trying to make with all this. But anyway, he believed that the continuation and expansion of slavery decreased likelihood of conflict and instilled a code of honor in the slave-owning whites. He said, and I quote, All societies are ruled by an elite group that enjoys the labor of a lesser group. I'm sure nobody would see a problem with that kind of language being used today to refer to black people. But in all honesty, if you ask me, I don't think he was just referring to black people when he talked about the lesser group. And wasn't just referring to slave-owning whites when he talked about the elite group. The elite group enjoying the labor of a lesser group really does tie into that core tenet of conservatism of an elite group with the power and a lesser group without the power. So just, just a little nugget for you to think about as we go through this, because this is going to be a very common theme, sort of linking everything I'm going to be talking about. So anyway, in the mid-1800s, you had the Whigs and the Southern Democrats. And of course, the Democrats in those days were basically the polar opposite of the way they work today. But anyway, these two parties, basically a conservative and a more conservative party, dominated politics for much of the early 1800s. 
But rather than settle things into prosperity as they thought they would, their pro-Southern policies only succeeded in driving things further apart. It turns out that this utopia of hierarchy that they were trying to instill into the United States was only good for those who already had money and power. In particular, Southern plantation owners whose wealth just absolutely skyrocketed on the backs of slaves. And a bit of a side note, this is actually a very common theme that we see in America when conservatives are running things. That basically, those who already have money and power get more, and those who have less get less. Rich get richer, poorer get poorer. And honestly, this is by design. The very foundations of conservatism state that the people who have this power and this money deserve it. And they deserve it simply because they have it, and it's always been that way. So with that in mind, let's talk about Abraham Lincoln. After all, the GOP still presents themselves to this day as, quote, the party of Lincoln. And believe it or not, Lincoln was not a conservative, nor was he really a liberal. It's a mischaracterization to say that the GOP, especially nowadays, is the party of Lincoln, because Lincoln was actually a moderate. He had both liberal and conservative views. So for those liberals who are listening who might be saying, but wait, he freed the slaves and did all the Emancipation Proclamation and all that, and yes, that's true. But let's not forget that before he did all that, before he felt the need to do all that, he actually wanted to keep slavery as an institution. He didn't want to get rid of it. Actually, one of his main points when he was running was, I'm not going to take away your slaves, southern states, even though, A, they didn't believe him, and B, that's exactly what he ended up doing, which, of course, was the right thing to do. But anyway, on the issue of slavery, some of the founding fathers actually wanted to put a condemnation of slavery into the Declaration of Independence and they decided not to do it because they needed to keep a solid block with the southern states, and obviously they never would have gone for it. But because of this, the Founding Fathers actually thought that slavery would eventually die out naturally. And this is actually a core tenet of liberal thinking, that people change with the times, and so should the law, and by definition, the Constitution. But anyway, after the Civil War, conservatism spread like crazy in the South mostly due to anger over losing the Civil War. And this culminated in the Compromise of 1877, which was the only time in American history that the Electoral College has been unable to select a president. So the Compromise was basically, we'll let the non-Southern guy in if you basically end Reconstruction. So that happened, and basically as soon as that happened, you started getting Jim Crow and the KKK and cementing conservative power in the South, in what was called the Southern South, and they insisted pretty much immediately on second-class status for black people. Why? Because, as we've heard many times and will continue to hear throughout the history of conservatism in the U.S., that's just the way it is. That blacks just aren't as good of people as white people. And so, they enjoyed this power, especially in the South, really all the way until the 1960s. And in the 1960s, obviously, we had a major cultural shift towards liberalism and freedom in America, particularly with the Civil Rights Movement. And the Civil Rights Movement was just a massive shock to this conservative dominance that they'd had for around 70 or 80 years. 
And so Southern conservatives specifically saw the passage of the Civil Rights Act, as well as the developing counterculture of the 60s, as deviant and dangerous. Democrats, meanwhile, took advantage of this shifting cultural movement and fully became the Liberal Party throughout this time, and sort of have continued that to this day. But the GOP, meanwhile, because of this shifting cultural movement and the rise of the civil rights movement, saw their grip on political and social power slipping. So, with this in mind, they created what was called the Southern Strategy. And according to Wikipedia, the Southern Strategy was a Republican Party electoral strategy to increase political support among white voters in the South by appealing to racism against African Americans. Specifically, Barry Goldwater, who was the Republican candidate for president in 64, he won the Bible Belt states, primarily because votes for him were in opposition directly to civil rights for black people. So again, these are states that had gone Democrat for the last 80 years or so, even when a more quote-unquote liberal Democrat like FDR had run. And this is because the Democrats sort of shifted more to become the party of the liberals and embrace this burgeoning social movement, whereas Barry Goldwater in the GOP was saying all the things that conservatives love to hear, that I am the candidate of keeping the status quo, that I am the candidate of putting the right people in power and making sure that the wrong people don't get it. I am the candidate of we, I don't want civil rights because blacks are already in their proper place as second-class citizens. And while thankfully he didn't win, it did give the GOP an opportunity to take a step back and say, we can sort of fill this void that the Democrats have left by becoming the Liberal Party. So it started with Nixon in 1968. He ran a campaign of law and order. Sound familiar? But it was Nixon's chief of staff who really kind of said the quiet part out loud that tells you a lot more than anything Nixon ever said or did. And what he said was, quote, The whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognized this while not appearing to. So in other words, the GOP understood that because the Democrats were now switching to be the party of the liberals and the civil rights movement, their best move to stay in power was to further embrace the true conservative right, which both at the time and today means embracing racism, classism, sexism, pretty much any kind of ism that puts white men, white Christian men specifically, on top. And speaking of Christianity, off the success that Nixon had in the 68 and 72 elections, GOP decided to drag religion into this as well and make themselves the party of Christianity. And the way they did this was with Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority. Jerry Falwell was a megachurch pastor who had access to absolute tons of money, and he used this money on massive ad buys, specifically in conservative and southern states, basically saying that religious freedoms are under attack because of things like Roe v. Wade, for example, and you need to go to the polls and defend Christian liberty and Christian values and religious freedom and all this other stuff. Basically, the same kind of thing you hear today, except at the time, no one had ever tried it before. 
for the most part, religion up until the 70s had been quite separate, even among conservatives, from politics. But Jerry Falwell and the Moore majority changed all this forever. The GOP saw what kind of success he was having, sort of galvanizing his followers into political issues, picked up the ball and ran it into the end zone, and they haven't looked back since then. And as I argued earlier, conservatism, the reason it embraces religion so much is because it enforces this social hierarchy that they think is so important. And so the only surprise to me for all of this is that it didn't happen sooner, is that it took someone like Jerry Falwell sort of pushing it into the mainstream in order for it to really get going. But once it did, the political participation of previously church-going apolitical people went through the roof, and it resulted in the election of GOP's lord and savior, Ronald Reagan. He was really the first one to successfully implement all of these traits that we see in modern conservatives. Reagan was the first one to openly push every value that conservatives held dear and not be afraid of what might happen for saying the quiet part out loud. He campaigned for law and order, which, as we know now, is a dog whistle for racism. He campaigned on focusing on faith and the nuclear family, and he says limited government, by which he means limited government for white Christians and more government for everyone else. But once he was in power, he was really the first to openly and solidly implement a conservative agenda directly into American government. And probably the most obvious example of this is the fact that he cut taxes in half for the ultra-rich, which gave them just a huge windfall of money, and they used that not to invest back in the American government, but to invest back into themselves and make themselves even more money. And so that's when we had sort of the Wall Street culture of the 80s of people just making unbelievable amounts of money for themselves at the expense of everybody else. But the thing is, this is conservative politics, and as I've said before, it's by design. The rich get richer and get more power because they deserve it, and the poor get less power because they don't deserve it and they can't handle it. And let's not even begin to talk about what Reagan did with the inner cities and basically relegating black people to second-class citizens again, specifically with the war on drugs. Again, this is conservative policies directly in action, folks. Even Reagan's successor, George H.W. Bush, in his campaign, rang this racist dog whistle almost worse than Reagan did, specifically with the Willie Horton ad. For those of you who don't know what that is, it was a very, very thinly veiled racist ad about how Dukakis, the Democratic candidate for president, basically wanted dangerous black people out on the streets murdering people. Didn't say that directly, but it was very, very heavily implied, and it's sort of used today as an example of kind of going too far when it comes to attack ads. So if you haven't seen it, haven't heard of it, I highly recommend you go look it up on YouTube. It's there, and you'll watch it, and your jaw will be on the floor by the end of it. But this was what the conservative party was now. This was what the GOP was now. They are now the party of the rich get richer. And the second-class citizens become more second-class because that's their place. And this influence only continued to grow throughout the 90s and the 2000s, even though we did have a fairly liberal president in Bill Clinton. 
he actually implemented a lot of conservative ideals specifically to stay in power and sort of bill himself as working with both sides of the aisle. But the proverbial you-know-what really didn't hit the fan and sort of morph into what we're seeing today until 2008 when Obama was elected. Obviously, the first black president of the United States is going to ring a lot of bells in the previously slave-owning South. And it's pretty obvious nowadays, in hindsight, that the Tea Party movement, which of course sprang up directly after the election of Barack Obama, was racist. I was looking in the crowds at the time, and I don't think I ever saw a single black person. But the point is that this sort of uprising of racial anger at the election of a black president sort of mirrored the rise of the moral majority in the 70s that you had this new, previously apolitical group on the fringes of the conservative movement basically looking for a platform, looking for someone to sort of take them on. And the GOP, like with the moral majority, took full advantage of this racial anger, as they always had. And not only did they appeal to this racial anger, they stoked it, exacerbated it, and amplified it. And a good example of this was during the 2012 presidential campaign when future President Donald Trump started publicly asking questions about Barack Obama's birth certificate, and after a while, he actually ended up releasing it to the public just to shut him up. And the GOP saw this, and when they did, they realized that there was a lot of pent-up racial conservative anger out there in rural parts of not only conservative states, but also battleground states and even some liberal states as well. So with this in mind, the conservatives really sort of came into what we saw today with RedMap. And if you haven't heard of RedMap, the idea was actually first proven in 2000 in Bush versus Gore when George W. Bush lost the popular vote but won the election basically on a fluke by the Supreme Court. But what it proved was that the GOP realized that you don't need to get the most amount of votes to win the election. You just have to get the right votes in the right places. So what RedMap was, it was a not-so-secret project started in 2010 by the GOP to increase their control of the federal government without getting any more votes. And the trick to it was gerrymandering. So in conservative states that they already controlled, as well as battleground states with conservative governors and or legislatures, they would crowd Democrats into fewer districts and spread out conservatives into more districts, specifically so that they would get the same amount of votes, but more seats or more likelihood that they would win a governorship or some sort of national seat like a congressman or a senator. So with the Tea Party rise in 2010, they swept themselves into power and they started implementing this plan. The result was that two years later, the GOP won 33 House seats despite the fact that their candidates got one and a half million fewer votes nationally. And let's not forget that in the past 30 years, Republicans have only actually won a single presidential race. And what I'm trying to get at here is that the GOP in the last 20 years has figured out that it doesn't matter if they have less voters if the system is rigged. Which leads me, finally, to Donald Trump, the modern GOP, and how it fits into the conservative anti-democratic ideology. 
So how do we describe Trumpism and, by default, the modern GOP platform? Let's go back to the beginning and examine the three tenets of conservatism that I opened the show with. So first is realism, which is that people will enrich themselves above all others pretty much every time. And so they've taken this and said that the Democrats only want to enrich themselves. They are the worst case scenario of the conservative nightmare. So going back to what Burke and DeMeester said about the average person, that they are too stupid and crazy and violent to be able to properly govern, it would then follow that the people who voted them into power, in other words, the people, are crazy, stupid, dangerous animals who need to be controlled by an elite group of deserving men. But the problem with this approach right now is that these lesser people make up a majority of the electorate. And so with that in mind, we go to the second tenet of conservatism, which is tradition. We need to fall back on what we already know and already know works. So the modern Republican translation of this is that we need to return to a better time when these people, when the Democrats, when the people weren't in control. And how do we do this? Well, the answer seems pretty obvious now when we see what the conservative party is doing. And this is by making democracy less democratic. In other words, we put more restrictions on voting so that less people are doing it. And I've heard a lot of Democrats, both on political shows and otherwise, saying that this is simply a tactic by the GOP to try and get less Democrats voting. And while this is true, I believe it goes deeper than that. I believe this is really just a sentiment of the conservative mindset in that we want less people voting not because we want to win, but because we don't think it's right that everyone can vote. We don't think that the average person can be trusted with governance. And Trump and the GOP have openly said now that more people voting means more Democrats voting, and so they want less people voting. And by the way, he's not wrong. Because as I've said before, The country is just, as a whole, becoming more liberal, and Republicans don't like that. But with less people voting, this means that the right people, in other words, rich, conservative, Christian, white men, will be the ones in power. Which leads me to the final tenet of conservatism, social hierarchy. That there is a natural order to things, and the way this natural order is cannot be changed. So, under this Trumpian sort of logic, These people, these rich conservative Christian white men who have all the power, belong in their status because they deserve to be there. And this goes right along with what Trump has always said about himself, that he deserves this power because he is himself a powerful man. Any argument otherwise betrays this social hierarchy. And going back to what he said about Obama that really sort of on the DL kickstarted his presidential career. Obama didn't deserve this power because he was born in Kenya or a Muslim. In other words, Obama is not a, quote, real legacy American, which, of course, is just a big racist dog whistle out in the open. But that's sort of the whole thing about Trumpism, that Trump really sort of showed the GOP that they shouldn't be afraid to embrace their true colors. In other words, in a nutshell, Trumpism is simply the unbridled true expression of the core values that make up conservatism. And I've shown in this episode how throughout the history of America, conservative movements have always popped up 
in times of liberal change saying that we need to go back to a simpler time. And I've also shown that this simpler time really just means we want the right people in power and we see them losing that power and we're not okay with it. So what it really comes down to is that Trumpism and the anti-democratic movement we see coming from the Republican Party is really just another visceral reaction to the wrong people starting to gain more political power and more rights. And I think a pretty accurate analogy for this would be one of my favorite TV shows ever, Breaking Bad. So the creator, when he was talking about the show, described it as seeing a transformation of Mr. Chips to Scarface. The idea, of course, of the show being that Walter White was Scarface all along. He just needed a catalyst to push him to fully embrace his true identity. And I feel that the same logic can be applied to Trumpism, the GOP, and the conservative movement overall. Conservatives were always anti-democratic from the beginning. The guy that started the movement was defending the French monarchy. Trump was simply the catalyst they needed to really fully embrace their anti-democratic mindset. And to really sort of hammer this point home, I want to talk about an article I read back in December 2021 called What Happened to American Conservatism? It was written by David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist, and he laments that Trumpism and its inherently anti-democratic nature has corrupted conservatism from its true roots. And to his credit, in this article, he does acknowledge that modern conservatism tends towards anti-intellectualism and straight-up racism. But in this article, he talks a lot about what he calls sentiments and how they've guided humanity down a noble path since the beginning of time. The way he describes them is that, quote, they tell you what is beautiful, what is ugly, what is right, what is wrong, where to go, and what to aim for. And where did these sentiments come from? He says they came from tradition, prior institutions, and a trust in a higher authority. In other words, these sentiments exist because someone older and wiser than us told us that we should be following them, and because they're older and wiser than us, we should believe them. And in his opinion, society should trust in these sentiments simply because we believe that they're correct. So tying this in with the core tenets of conservatism, these sentiments that the author talks about are really sort of just a combination of the last two tenets of conservatism, so tradition and social hierarchy. Basically saying that these sentiments are the tradition that we need to follow because it's worked before, and we should just trust in it because these people who gave us these sentiments are wiser and higher and more powerful than us, and they deserve to be that way because it's tradition. So it's a very well-written article, and I'm glad I read it, but I disagreed entirely with how it characterizes conservatism. And the reason for this is because the author doesn't mention that these sentiments that he talks about that are so important are typically designed by those already in power. And history has shown over the last 3,000 plus years of human history that if someone is in power, they want to stay in power. I go back to one of my favorite movie quotes of all time from The Matrix Reloaded. What do all men with power want? More power. But I would add to that, what are all men with power most afraid of? Losing their power. Therefore, I believe that these sentiments have always been designed specifically to keep the people in power 
in power. So with this in mind, modern conservatism isn't really corrupted from classical conservatism, as the author believes, so much as just now it's more openly anti-democratic. When those feelings were already there, we just needed a catalyst to sort of fully embrace them. So to put a bow on this whole point that I'm trying to make with this initial episode, American conservatism throughout its history has mainly been a reactionary movement to liberal socioeconomic change. And this is because liberal change disrupts the natural hierarchy that conservatives see of white Christian men on top. And after all, we fought a civil war about it. But even with the civil war, every progressive movement has had a conservative backlash. We could talk about the Red Scare, the Southern Strategy, the Moral Majority, the Tea Party, Trumpism today. It's no accident that all of these movements have had racist undertones because, as we've seen in conservatism throughout history, the natural order of things is whites over blacks. And going back to my Breaking Bad analogy, these movements and their goals prove that conservatism was anti-democratic all along. Trump was simply Walt's lung cancer for the GOP, the catalyst that broke them out of their shell to reveal their true form. So to put this in a more easily understandable context, Trump's popularity among the base energized the Republicans to start truly taking steps towards being openly anti-democratic because they realized that doing this would not only not ruin their political careers, it would actually gain them more power. And they wouldn't be willing to do this, they wouldn't be willing to be so openly anti-democratic if it wasn't in them all along. And January 6th, which I'm going to be discussing in my next episode, was really sort of an inflection point and the point of no return, so to speak, for the GOP. January 6th could have been an opportunity for them to take a step back and reaffirm that they really were committed to democratic values. And instead, only a handful of more moderate, reasonable conservatives actually did that. The rest of the party, on the other hand, doubled down. And looking at the signs of what we're seeing with regards to trends in the midterms, it's likely to work. And it's for this reason that I truly fear for the state of our democracy in the next three to four years. And this is why I decided to restart this podcast, because I think it's really important, especially as the midterms are coming up, for someone to keep their ear to the ground in the conservative bubble and really sort of break down exactly what they're saying, and why they're saying it. Because as I've shown, their ultimate goal seems to be the dismantling of democracy as we know it, and the creation of a quasi-authoritarian religious state, simply because it's the right thing to do. And if you ask any questions about it, then you're just one of the wrong people to be in charge. Just shut your mouth, praise the people in power, and be happy that you have a status in society at all. So this is what Undercover Bubble is going to be about from here on out. I'm going to be taking examples of how the right has indoctrinated and pushed these views onto their constituency and how this propaganda ultimately furthers their goal of trying to either severely cripple or completely dismantle American democracy in favor of an autocratic theocratic state where the right people have the power and belong there. 
So if you made it all the way through this history lesson, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it gave you a little bit more perspective on what it means to truly be a conservative. And now it's time for my personal favorite part of the show, the Alex Jones Award. So if any of you listened to my previous Undercover Bubble podcast, this is the section that replaces the weirdest thing I saw this week. So I've named it the Alex Jones Award, of course, after the world-famous conspiracy theorist. So when I do research for an episode, and I do a lot of research for these episodes, I go to a bunch of different conservative websites, and a lot of times my search for material leads me into some of the wackier far-right sites. And so when I go to these places, I typically find something that really tickles my fancy, makes me chuckle, makes me sort of gasp in disbelief that someone could actually believe this stuff. And so when I see these things, I make note of them, and I incorporate them into my show in what I'm now calling the Alex Jones Award. So the Alex Jones Award is basically awarded each episode to the craziest, most conspiratorial, hilarious, weirdest, dumbest thing that I've seen while doing my research for the episode. So, rather appropriately, this episode's Alex Jones Award goes to Alex Jones. So for those of you who haven't been following the news, Alex Jones is in a lot of hot water right now because he's about to pay probably a bunch of money out of his own pocket in the defamation lawsuit over the Sandy Hook massacre. So when the Sandy Hook first happened, he basically went on his radio show that's listened to by millions of people and said that it didn't really happen and that the people who died were just crisis actors. Obviously, the parents of the people who died didn't take this very well, so they sued him for defamation and won. So now they're in the penalty phase of what he's actually going to pay, and it may very well dissolve his InfoWars empire if he has to pay too much. So what he's been doing is going on his show and basically just sort of spewing out every single crazy conspiratorial thing that you could possibly think of, I guess to just get it out of his system before he has to stop his show. But there was one theory, I should call it, I guess, that really took the cake this time around. It's a conspiracy centuries in the making, and according to Alex Jones, it involves everyone from Count Dracula and Francis Bacon to Atlantis, the Chinese Communist Party, nanotechnology, and population control. But I shouldn't say any more. I'll just let the man himself explain it to you. Take it away, Alex Jones. The operating system of the Saxe-Coburg-Gotha families, which is the oldest bloodline of European bloodlines in the world in which all European bloodlines agree are their progenitors, going back to their founder, Vlad the Impaler. Count Dracula is the recognized head of the entire dynasty. And so this house of the dragon that flies the dragon banner, the Dracul, rule the planet. Just like Revelation tells us the dragon. And it's allied with the other dragon, Chicoms. So if you don't know what Chicom means, it's a very uh, common conservative trope that's short for Chinese communists. So basically what he's saying in this first part of the clip is that the House of the Dragon, started by Vlad the Impaler and Count Dracula, has ruled the world since the 16th century, and now they're allied with the Chinese Communist Party. But it gets better. Let's listen on. It's here, the second Atlantis. And you know how Atlantis ended. 
and, and America was founded by Francis Bacon and others to be the new Atlantis. And so that's where we are. And the decision has been made, and you can see the arguments are there, especially the public doesn't say no to this. It, this is a test to go ahead and wipe out 90 plus percent of the population. And quite frankly, if the population doesn't care and doesn't get engaged, doesn't get involved, the population does deserve to die. The children don't, but definitely the adults and the slobs and the decadent people uh, that, 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 that think they're winning in this corrupt system and think this is all funny. Those people deserve to die. I'm not gonna kill them, we shouldn't kill them, but I'm simply explaining that they're projecting their own loathing of themselves onto us and they want us to die. And, I, and I'm simply telling them, don't worry, you're not gonna have to wait long. You're gonna be in a dystopia and die too. So go ahead and pretend like you're part of the power structure, you're not. But then there's the real Luciferians on top who actually believe Lucifer's God, they're bringing balance to the universe, and they're very sad about what they have to do, and this is all part of a greater plan. They're instruments of this uh, incredible transformation, that they call it, this transcendence that's happening. So they've already begun injecting people with the time-delayed kill switches. Uh, it's They're already spraying this with nanotech, already putting in all the food. It, it's The attack has begun. We are now being murdered. So there you have it, folks. We are being murdered because Count Dracula has ruled the world since time immaterial and Francis Bacon founded the United States of America to be a new Atlantis. And now the Chinese Communist Party is in concert with the Luciferians to slaughter 90% of the population by injecting us with microchips and spraying nanotechnology on us that's going to slowly murder us and kill off our food population. At least, I, that's, that's what I took from it. I'm not exactly sure what he was trying to say. But in any case, it's just always a delight to hear conspiracy theories coming out of Alex Jones's mouth, and even more of a delight to highlight them and poke fun at them. But what we should remember, folks, is that as funny as this stuff is, there are millions of people out there who actually listen to it and 100% with every fiber of their being believe it. So that does give me a little bit of a concerned attitude for the direction of this country when there's people like Alex Jones openly speaking out to millions of people this kind of insanity who actually believe it. But seeing that it is insanity and that it's kind of hilarious to try and piece the whole argument together, which I don't know if I even did, congratulations, Alex Jones. You are the recipient of the inaugural Alex Jones Award. And with that, that ends this episode of Undercover Bubble. If you made it all the way through, I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at UCB underscore podcast, or you can follow my personal account at, at Pimo the Music Man. Next episode, I'll be taking a look at Tucker Carlson's January 6th documentary. So I hope you can join me for that. And until then, this is Patrick Moore saying thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Undercover Bubble. Have a good one, folks.